Okay, great souls. Here we are again. Um, I just saw a new edition of this book, which is absolutely gorgeous. Yeah, I just, nobody's holding it. I'll have to bring it in next week. Same book, but it's really beautifully done. Not that this isn't, but it was nice. We are in the middle of 297. We actually, and this is about reincarnation. I'd read the first half last time I was with you, which was a while ago, but it's still just the next class. This is about how Master saw people differently from the way most of us do. He didn't see merely the present bodies, but he thought of us as one manifestation among many. That's the introduction. And then he was, Master gave, would casually tell people about their previous incarnations. So Master had told the disciples that he'd been William the Conqueror in a previous lifetime. We've talked about that at other points. So here we are in this, starting here. A number of the disciples asked Master if they'd been with him when he was William the Conqueror. He answered them freely. Then Swami says, Curiously, I myself never asked that question, though it was being generally asked at the time. I've often wondered if he didn't prevent the question from surfacing in my mind. I believe already in this book, Swami has said he, he feels he was Master's son, Henry. And uh, when I asked Swami, why would you felt Master didn't want you to know? And Swami said he, he didn't feel he would have, it would have helped him to know that the sense of having that relationship and then finding out historically what an important role Henry ended up playing at that time as a very young disciple with all that he was going to have to go through. Uh, Swami said he didn't really feel it would have been helpful to him to know. So everyone around is asking Master very casually, who was I in that lifetime? And Swami never asked the question, which in retrospect seems odd. Uh, it might also not have... You know, he had that very difficult karma to act out with his gurubhais, especially his sister disciples, and if they had known that Swami had had such an important role in Master's life in previous lifetimes, it might also have uh, confused and inhibited karma that had to happen. I mean, all of this is to say, nothing that happens in the life of a disciple is as straightforward as it may appear. And we have to be more sensitive to realities and can't just um, attribute to them the most obvious rational explanations. Often other explanations are at work. So anyway, to Norman, he said, you were my giant. And Norman had a very large body in this lifetime too. I mean, imagine if you were a general and you had a great, big, strong soldier. It would really mean a lot to you. To Jerry, he said, you were good. You used to fight for me. Jerry was a very rough character, and he was such a rough character to that extent. He just, in the end, just had to leave the monastery. He just didn't fit. But you can see a rough character trying to live at a monk at Mount Washington might not have been such an asset, but to have such a rough character when you were a soldier, you know, you, want, you need men who are like that. Um, one of the explanations... It wasn't, I didn't hear it from Master, but I heard it from someone else talking about why an avatar would take an odd incarnation, was also that his disciples need the experience. So he comes along with them in order to be able to take them in the direction that they're going. Some of us this morning were talking about the hazards of being born 
in the West in such a materialistic age as this one? Where the temptations of materialism and sensuality and even adharma with the lack of ethical foundation and so on. But it's a risk that we had to take in order to come here. And, uh, and also because perhaps we wanted the experience. So the master thinks if you're going to come, he'll come with you. And sort of try to save you from the worst of your own potential. You just never know, is all that I'm saying. It's not obvious. Henry and an old man, Ed Harding, who also was a disciple, had felt an instant antipathy toward one another. They overcame it, but Henry asked the master one day why they had such a feeling. Master said, oh, you were enemies in the past. <laughs> Just, Swamiji's answer to that also was, we've all, this is a very old family and we've all been all things to one another. All things positive, all things negative. You know, often antipathy results from too much attachment. If, you have, if you're very attached to someone and after a time perhaps they either betray you or don't live up to your expectations or you have desires of them that they don't fulfill, it's very easy for extreme attachment to turn to antipathy. So you can also see how over the course of lifetimes people can start out being very fond of someone but then if, when desires are frustrated, it leads to anger. And then anger leads to antipathy. So you end up being born in the next lifetime having a, just a very negative feeling towards someone because you just start out feeling like this person disappointed you and you're annoyed with them. I mean, really think about how many unresolved situations there are in people's lives. Um, uh, it, crimes of passion, somebody becomes angry and shoots you for some reason. The next time you see them, the first thing you think of is that they, they, they shot you. And that person may be thinking nothing but remorse. So he's extremely, he or she is extremely eager to make it up to you. And you're still really quite annoyed about having been murdered. It could be, or <laughs> murdered in some other way. But it, it, it takes a tremendous amount of consciousness in the moment to respond to situations in terms of what's actually happening. And one of the, the ways people misuse reincarnation is they get this story going, which is often a true story, of all these other things that happened and therefore. And what we don't understand is therefore nothing because it's all over. And especially when you're in a spiritual family where everybody's been working hard to grow, Nobody is, nobody is who they were. And if you yourself insist on living in who you were, holding people in, in who you were, then everybody loses all the way down the line. But it's very complicated because it's not that easy to resolve all these issues in the present life. But it's just one more reason, as Swami put it, to sort of work it out while you still remember why. Because if it comes up later meaning later in other lifetimes when the details are obscure from your mind, you create a whole other um, drama on top of the original drama because you're projecting onto someone many times, not always, but many times, motives that no longer exist. They just no longer exist, but because they're unresolved in you, you always think that it's still happening. And then that person is completely bewildered and it becomes 
You can just see, this is why we incarnate so many times, because all these vrittis just never get finished. So we have to do our best. It's not always possible. But we have to do our best at least to try to make an effort, you know, to face into what's ever happening and to to try as much as possible to really discern between what we think someone has done to us and what was actually done to us. I mean, I live with these. We all live with these because it's an old spiritual family. You just, there you are. And I remember, I, I think I've told you about it, the and this, this is more like thought projection, but it was the same thing. This woman walked into the dining room. There was just this huge f- fight between these two women in the community. Both of them were very emotional. Neither of them are with us anymore, so I can just say it. But uh, one of them took great offense at the, what, what she said was the actions of the other. The other person said that she never said a word but she admitted later that she was holding very negative thoughts. And so this one actually heard the thoughts as if they were spoken out loud. This one pretended that she was absolutely innocent because she hadn't articulated it. But it got so wound up that, I mean, I finally had to, you know, say to this one, what were you thinking? Because I knew she had a very negative attitude toward the other girl and her pious declarations of innocence were technically accurate, <laughs> but absolutely wrong. So we're all, caught, we're all caught in this, especially when we're talking about within the family. There's so much intuition, there's so much... Um, you, 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 it, the, that's the great thing about spiritual community, is you really don't, you can't get away with it. You just can't. You have to just keep going back until you get it right. Or you die trying, but at least you're pushing it in the right direction. And the less you believe that anybody actually done you wrong, the better off you are. Even if they have, because nobody else is free either. So they may actually think very ill of you. But you have to then decide yourself whether or not you want to just keep it going. Is it worth it to me? I always say that to myself. I'm not enjoying it now. I'm not likely to enjoy it any more later. You know, it's, it seems worth the effort to try to get current and get karmically clean at this point. Also, you really never know when you're going to breathe your last. And, you know, if this is going to be my last thought, do I really want it to be my last thought? And it's just, it's, it's just efficient, is what it is. It's karmically efficient. By no means is it easy or always possible. Many feelings are way beyond our control can't always dictate to your heart what it's going to feel. But you can certainly direct it toward what you're trying to direct it toward. And that's all God asks of us. And if you, even if it is your last breath, if you were oriented in the right direction, then the momentum will keep going that way. If you're oriented in the wrong direction, that just, all you lose is, well, all you get to do is suffer more. I mean, like, it's, there's no, there's no, like, other punishment, the punishment is inherent. It's just you get to live the limited life. So nobody has to do anything to you because you're already doing everything to yourself. That's the irony of it all, but not so easy to break. Keep it simple in your mind, but it's not always simple in your heart. So, love is the power usually 
which brings people together life after life, so also is hate such a power. When you see families that fight among themselves all the time, the master said, it is because they've been drawn together by their mutual animosity. Isn't that awful? Um, That way they get to work out their enmity at close quarters. Just really something, isn't it? I mean, I know it wasn't true in my own family, but I've certainly known families where either siblings or, or the parents themselves, I was charmed in a horrible way when I heard um, Meryl Streep accept a lifetime award for her great acting for all those years and she gave credit to her mother and father whom she described as two of the most intelligent, refined, creative, you know, most interesting people she ever knew who fought intensely every day of their lives and thus introduced her at a very young age to drama. Is that how she put it? <laughs> she, she gave them credit for her ability to act. <laughs> but you do see. I, I'm, I knew a woman. I mean, it was very difficult for her. She had twins. She had fraternal twins, a boy and a girl. Tremendous affection for the boy. And from the beginning, great enmity toward the daughter. Which, of course, was very hard on the daughter, but it was also very hard on the mother. But there it was, great enmity. It just brought them together. And, uh, I mean, a lot of times, I'm, well, a lot of very difficult things are really explained by reincarnation one way or another. That you're just not starting with a clean slate. But can you imagine that poor mother, what she had to struggle with, too? Because one... One half was, uh, was spontaneous and the other was always forced. Very difficult. But see, nobody else needs to punish you because you'll, you'll get enough for yourself. That's why the masters are so compassionate. Because there's just, there's just no need. That's why Divine Mother's so compassionate. She doesn't need to mete out to us anything more than we're already doing. I mean, we're living there in, in a uh, p- potential of perfect bliss. And instead we we're, we're, got blinders on and we have our hands twisted and we're beating our heads with a hammer. So it's like she doesn't need to pick up another tool and start dr- drilling through our skull. We're just doing it to ourselves. It's put humorously by, I remember Richard Bach put it that way. If you, if you fight to defend your delusions, then the reward is you get to keep them. <laughs> and that's it. So if we fight for, for our right to be unhappy and wrong, then we get to be. There you have it. Okay. My purpose in introducing this subject, Swami is saying, is to say that living with the Master made it natural for us to see life as a continuum and the present life as only temporary. Eternity became more easily for us a daily reality. That's really an absolutely beautiful thought. When I first started with the idea of reincarnation, I was 18. American, never had even raised in a Jewish family. It really wasn't part of dinner table conversation, especially not at that point in time. Now it's more common. And uh, I didn't know if it was true, but it certainly made more sense than anything else I'd heard. And I started enjoying uh, explaining otherwise confusing situations in terms of reincarnation. That's how I started with it. Just what if reincarnation were the explanation for this? You know, I, I'd certainly had 
several experiences in my life already at that point of absolutely instantaneous connections with people. The woman that was my best friend through college and is, except for my, my sister, my blood sister, is the only relationship that I'm, I've maintained that isn't part of Ananda. But I'd, I was at Stanford University and the one year I was there and it was the first week and I just looked over and there she was. You know, it was just like that. And I'd never seen her before. She was completely outside of the world I was living. But just immediately, I just knew her. And she knew me. We became instant friends and we're very close friends and still are, even though we, our lives have, are not that together. But how else can you explain that? You know, you don't even have to get to know a person. You just know them. And they, they don't surprise you, or they usually don't surprise you. But it's, it's, when you just think reincarnation, well, of course. Oh, there you are again. You know, I lost you for a while, or we, we haven't seen each other since the astral world. You don't know which one it is. Um, there are many great souls living here, the masters told me. Glancing out the window, we happened to see Louise Royston, an old woman, simple-natured and very sincere, working on the grounds outside. Even she, he commented with a smile. He then added to me with a chuckle, you know, when she first came here, she was just as ugly as she is now. You know, Swamiji and I have had lots of conversations about that phrase, because that is exactly what Master said. And in, in something else he was writing, he, he, he just said the same things because he was quoting Master. And I said, you know, it's, it's very hard to understand what that was meant. And Swami would just sort of say, that is what Master said. I mean, Swami goes to great length to talk about what a lovely sh- soul she was. For a while he used the word homely. But in, uh, in, in British English, homely means homey. You know, so it doesn't have the same meaning. So I, but he, went, he went around for a long time trying to find another word besides ugly because it's so shocking. A master heard it. I mean, Swami was there and he knew, he felt the love in master's heart. I think master was very blunt spoken. And it, when, you, when you're with someone who's blunt spoken, you can often tell by the vibration of the way they say it what their real feeling is behind it. But when you put the same words on paper, it's often hard to, uh, to feel it. So there it is. And it means it, I don't know what Master was responding to. Because Swami said, himself said, he didn't see her as that way. He saw her as just, uh, Swamiji said, he said he just, she just had the face of an old woman. But maybe she had the face of an old woman when she was a young woman, which is why Master might have said that. Who knows? Anyway, those are his words. She was just as ugly as she is now. Yeah, yeah. Makes you kind of cringe a little, doesn't it? Okay. I entered his sitting room one afternoon when one of the younger nuns, Corinne Forshi, who later received the monastic name Mukti, was there briefly arranging papers on his desk. She seemed to be paying no attention to the master, and the criticism flashed through my mind. She can't be a very devoted disciple to show so little interest in our guru when she has the blessing of being in his presence. After she'd left the room, the master said to me with a beautiful smile, what a wonderful soul she is. Yeah, I think Swami, I mean, it's nice of Swami to put in his own corrective thought. Master must have obviously been trying to guide him to see more deeply into what people were doing. And also, of course, 
in other places, Swamiji talks about how when Sister Gyanamata was with Master, she often never spoke, never looked at him. But, but Swami did say he always had the feeling that a lot of communication had happened between them. It's just that none of it showed. So Master was correcting Swamiji, and he's correcting us too. You know, I was reading Sister Gyanamata's biography, I mean, her, her collection of letters, God Alone, recently, and it also includes a little biography. And she also, in some of her letters to Master especially, describes herself and her life. Now, let me think what I was going to say there. Oh, but they described her as almost always silent. You know, you, she didn't have small talk and she, she wasn't clever. I mean, she was brilliant and she was extraordinarily deep. Her letters, except for Swami's writing, to my mind, are just the most wonderful ever. Um, but she, she didn't feel the necessity to speak, so she was quiet a great deal of the time. So one can be quiet because one's energy is low, or one can be quiet because one's energy is high. It goes both ways. So silence, silence in itself is not always a sign of depth. Sometimes it's a sign of the need to put out more energy, to just participate and be engaged. But in her case it wasn't, and I guess in the case of Mukti it wasn't either. She was just doing what she was asked to do. So, interesting. Any comments or thoughts before we go on to the next one? All right, number 298. Master says, I used to laugh a lot when I was a boy because of my inner joy in God, the Master told us. The saints I met, most of whom were outwardly grave, welcomed my laughter as coming from God. Interesting. Of course, he was often really a boy when he went to visit the saints. He wasn't even a young man. He was virtually a child. Baduri Mahashaya, the levitating saint, as I've described him in my autobiography, enjoyed my laughter for the same reason. It upset a few of his disciples, however, to see me laugh in the presence of their ever-serious master. It's an interesting picture it paints, isn't it? You know, there's the ashram, is the master just silently meditating? I, perhaps he did sometimes. And master starts laughing. Is he laughing at jokes or is he just laughing? Sometimes, well, he says that. Um, I used to laugh a lot when I was a boy, he says, because of my inner joy in God. So he's just a child who just begins to laugh. So he's sitting there and everybody else is meditating. Imagine, they're all meditating, they're all serious. And all of a sudden, this kid over here starts bursting out laughing, you know. I mean, uh, Baduri Mahashaya recognized him. I think he used to call him Chota Mahashaya, little great soul. But uh, still, he was a child. I mean, just think of it. I love to think of it just actually, if there was a child here, you know, in the room who suddenly just starts giggling and laughing. You don't really know which way it's going, where it's coming from. Um, It upset a few of his disciples, however, to see me laugh in the presence of their ever-serious master. One time he said to me, I understand and I appreciate why you like to laugh, but as it disturbs some of these here, do you think perhaps you should be more serious for their sake? And then master says, I understand what you mean, but can they not see that it springs from the joy I feel in God and in your company? He relented. All right, laugh if you feel to, and I will try to explain it, that it comes from God. (laughs) 
one time in, in the Christmas meditation at Ananda, I had what I actually was an almost irresistible desire to start laughing out loud. I actually asked Swami about it later, and he says sometimes that is an actual manifestation. I mean, I'm not, I want you all to understand, these, these, this is not my everyday experience. Like once at the Christmas meditation, out of 45 Christmas meditations, I just had this incredible desire to laugh, so much so that I just sit and reason with myself. In the middle of the Christmas meditation, I was almost convinced that if I just started laughing, everyone would start laughing and we'd all just be so happy together laughing. I mean, that's how, you know, how strong the mind was. But a part of me could also objectively see what would happen if I started laughing in the middle of this room of 200 silently meditating people that they were not likely to understand. But it was so strong in me. I mean, that's why I asked Swami about it later. It was so strong. I've never before or since experienced anything like it. But... As I said, Swami said, you know, sometimes that is a manifestation of how the Spirit comes through you. And so what Master's talking about, I presume, on an infinitely higher level, was that kind of a flow of energy that the levitating saint was able to understand, but it would be wacky for his students. Just thinking like that, they'd see nothing funny in the room. Because he says, it was the joy in God and the joy in your company. I, I, over the last few months, I've read a lot of, uh, about Ramakrishna's life, which I do periodically just because it's so interesting. And he was so um, not normal. And not normal in ways that at first people did not immediately think that he was not normal because he was so elevated. They just thought he was not normal. But you really see, I mean, Master... Master was a lot more extreme than he is normally presented to us. But when an individual is really living on another plane according to an entirely other set of values, they, they don't conform. They don't conform at all. I mean, that's one of the things that happens when religion becomes institutionalized, is everybody starts behaving in certain ways and, and propriety becomes a consideration rather than true inspiration. So we try to keep Ananda a little bit eccentric. You know, just keep it casual, keep it easy, make it be okay for people just to be the way they are because otherwise people start putting it on from the outside. It's, it's very, um, I think we'll be fine, but you always have to think that way. And, Ma- and Sri Yukteswar also said learn to behave, so we're not talking about being uncouth, but being spontaneous and real. All right, number 299. I, Walter Swamiji, once asked the Master, should I love people or ought I to reserve my love for God alone? Master answered, it is better to love God. In loving people, you might get attached to them. What you must do where others are concerned is love God first and then love him through them. That's an incredibly important teaching. It's probably worth a few minutes on it. You know, one of the great dangers in the spiritual path is that people, out of fear of attachment, actually become aloof and a little bit cold. And, and so the balancing point, which, you know, he, 
Master goes to the trouble to tell him how to love people. He doesn't say, don't love people. I mean, I suppose, well, you always have to. It's, I mean, even if you're, uh, if even if you're a sadhu living all by yourself, all of the, all of the highest spiritual teachings are all about giving. It's always about giving. Let's go back to the festival of light. Um, the, the, it describes four stages of the soul's long journey away from God back into union with God. The first is the mission. The second is revolting against that mission, uh, rebelling against it. The third is the quest to understand what real truth is. The mission meaning to be in tune with God and to share it. The rebellion is, I think I'd be happier if I just take for myself. If I'm not going to look out for myself, who is? So I begin to take care of myself. The quest is when that's not working so well. So you start asking what is really true. And then the fourth stage is what the stage of a liberated master. Here then is the fourth and last stage in the soul's long journey. And then it describes the master's life. You know, from a life of infinite joy and freedom in God, willingly to embrace limitation, pain, and death for the salvation of mankind. Such ever has been the sacrifice of the great masters for the world. Here then is the fourth and last stage of the soul's long journey, the redemption, it's described. But the redemption is, redemption is a, I've never, it's a hard word for me to explain. But, but what happens is we come all the way to the point where, where you have the consciousness of a master, where you have, no, you have no self to protect and everything about yourself is simply offered in service to the welfare of other people. So the, the relationship with other people and the necessity to bring that to a spiritual fulfillment is really part of that really important flow of energy. And, and there's, no, there's no way around it. Even Master says that. He says, you, it's better to love God because if you love people, you might get attached to them, meaning you might begin to concentrate on the form rather than the consciousness. And then what, what you must do, he said, what you must do where others are concerned is love God first and then love him through others. Because when you think about it, I mean, one of Swamiji's extraordinary qualities and one of the qualities you feel in Master is how much, how much love he gives to us and just how unconditional that friendship is. All the stories of Master's life, I will return again and again a trillion times if necessary as long as one stray brother is left behind. I mean, think about that. That's not the act of someone who's, well, he's just detached. What does it matter? I just love God. You, 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 on one hand, you hear the, the necessity for this absolute detachment, but then when you actually see how the masters live, they live in a state of total sacrifice for the welfare of everyone. And it's, it's so it, you have to really find that place. I, there's a story, I, I think it was his name, I can't remember whose name is, but it was the name of some Christian priest, Catholic priest, I believe, who ended up in the concentration camps during the Nazi regime, probably for helping the Jews. And at one point, 
someone was sentenced to be locked up and starved to death and he volunteered to take their place and was allowed to. He just, you know, well, somebody has to die. You have a family. You know, you need to live for your family. I'm just a priest. I can die. It's a beautiful story. I can't, unfortunately, remember his name, but it was a beautiful story. And, And Jesus said, you know, a man must be willing to lay down his life for his friends. That's how he put it. So there, you can see that that implies a kind of commitment to the well-being of others that is quite different than, well, I'll just remain detached. I'm not going to get involved in this world. But at the same time, Master gives us those little words, you love God through other people. And so what you're looking at is the power of their spirit, the power of their soul. Swamiji said in a talk he actually gave in this temple or uh, in this city, I'm not sure whether they were in this temple, um, uh, on one of the master's birthday celebrations we had, he said, he he was explaining how whenever he gives a talk, he feels like he's talking to master giving a lecture to a crowd of people is for him serving his guru. And then he tries to explain. I know that can sound sort of funny because how could I be teaching my own guru? That doesn't make any sense, does it? But he said, master to him is that potential for awakening that's in each person. I mean, that's what the guru is. The guru is the power of awakening. So he says whenever he speaks to a crowd of people, what he's speaking to is that potential to awaken. And he tries to address it, so to speak, in every person's heart so that it'll open up. So they'll hear or see something that they didn't know before that will cause them to aspire to a higher, higher level of consciousness. And he's, he's completely committed to that in, in, every, in every way. Everything that Swami did for his whole life was this tremendous commitment to that individual awakening for every soul. And he, he, he defined that as serving his guru. That was his guru's presence in people, is their own potential for higher consciousness. So when you have that kind of commitment, you know, it, what it feels like to the person receiving it is just this extraordinary... Um, well, unconditional friendship is what it feels like, where y- your welfare is everything, your true welfare, not your convenience or your egoic preferences, but your true welfare. And it, it gives you a sense of uh, just confidence that's really extraordinary. That's what the power of a saint is, is that they see in us more than we see in ourselves, and that... Um, commitment to that reality gradually gives us the power to realize it. And, and whatever you think of as love, that has to be what love is. So we love God through other people. There was this, the little story I put in my other book about Swami where some visitor to the community, who'd been there for about three or four days, said to Swami, he said, you people don't even know me. And he was speaking to Swami directly. You know, I've just met you. He said, but I feel more love from you than I feel from my own family. He said, how is that possible? He, he experienced it 
But he didn't, and he wasn't saying that because his family was terrible. He was just saying, you don't even know me. And Swami's answer was so simple. He said, what I see in you is the presence of God whom I already love. So I don't have to know you. He said, and you're right, I don't know the details of your life like your family does, but I know you. And I think there's something in us that also knows that that's who we are. You know how, how frustrating it is when people don't seem to understand you? I, I mean, I hear the rather uh, slang phrase, or he, I, you know, we get along so well because he really gets me, is what people will say, meaning he somehow sees or she somehow sees who I really am. But there is no deeper level than our divine self. And when someone sees you and relates to you on that level, even if they're perfectly natural, and that you have to understand, because the people who you know, just stare into your eyes and are always being a little strange are not always, sometimes they are, but are not always really tuning in on a higher level. But (laughs) Master was perfectly natural. Swamiji was just totally natural. But so it wasn't an affectation. It It was a lot of what he's talking about here. You know, Master, reincarnation was a natural part of their lives. And, and they just understood that we're all in this long journey together. And who you are in this moment, in this apparent form, is really very little of who you actually are. And that, that's where the, the power comes of our community, of our spiritual family also, is that you know, we're, just, we're all just taking each other through this very long process. And we've been in it together for a long time. Swami actually says in one of the later chapters of the path, the new path, it, it, it's one of the very last chapters. He actually talks about the spiritual family and he talks about the necessity to spiritualize not only our inner relationship with God but also our relationship to the objective world, especially other people. We have to, we have to make that relationship work from a divine perspective. And he's not talking about personal friendships or marriage or children or anything like that although that is one of the ways we practice, that's for sure. But what it really is, is to be able to love God through other people. Especially the path that we're on, meaning this is, ma- this is Master's way of doing it. We, are we, the example of our gurus, with the exception of Babaji, and even he is, according to the autobiography, is very much engaged in this world, and helping people, but their example is they're not they're not Himalayan ascetics. They're all very much engaged, especially Master and Swami, which are the most recent in time and therefore the most relevant examples for us. And Lahiri was also like that. So it's it's part of the path that we've chosen. It might have been more convenient to choose another one, but we didn't. <laughs> and now we're sort of stuck. <laughs> not that you can't be yourself. You can love people greatly in solitude. There's that story of Swami meeting Yogi Ramya in India, who lived in this remote village. Almost no one recognized him. Master said he was a fully liberated soul. And he lived in this remote village in India. Swami went and spent four days with him. 
Nobody there seemed to have any idea who he was. He mostly chatted with the neighbors about the crops and the food. And when Swami said something essentially to him, why haven't you done more with your life? He said, God has done what he's wanted to have done through this one. But the power of that meditation going out is what the issue was. And in the same context, let's see, the details of the story I, I might not get exactly right, but the essence of it was this. It was one of the stories that Swami tells about two or three sadhus who were buried in mud somewhere and then were dug up after hundreds of years of meditation. And they were very upset because they, they felt they were very close to freedom and now they'd been brought back. And Master said they were um, trying to have, have it for themselves. He said that's why they had the karma to be interrupted. Because they weren't, they weren't giving. They had a, a karmic flaw. They were trying to take for themselves and they weren't giving. Here then is the fourth and last stage. You know, for the, to, to give all for the sake of others, to, to redeem others by our giving. And so they got drawn out of that samadhi and they had to start over. I mean, of course, it would be a little tiny adjustment, but nonetheless, it, he, that's what he said. So, I mean, and we, we ourselves just have to recognize how central selfless service, selfless attitude, selfless giving, unconditional loving is. It doesn't mean we have to be more active than our temperament requires. We don't have to be more social than our karma necessitates because it's an attitude of the heart, of just wishing goodwill. When, when Master was walking on the cliff at Encinitas at one point and he came to a place, he was walking with someone, maybe it was with Mr. Black, I don't remember, and Rajasi was meditating. And when they came close, Master made them stop talking and be silent. And then he said, you have no idea what blessings are drawn to this work when even one person goes, is deep in meditation. So a person can be alone in a cave meditating, but if the attitude is one of expansive loving, then you don't have to be in physical proximity. Um, it's, it's the self-forgetfulness. It's very subtle, but we can practice it easily in our, our everyday life. And the, the word is actually self-forgetfulness. Self-offering, self-forgetfulness. You know, we, we offer ourselves into thy infinite light. Make me a channel of your blessing. I mean, it's really great fun, you know, when you're just around everywhere with people you don't even know, to just try to be a beacon of light. It just, just for fun, gives you something to do. One of the stories in, uh, I think it's in the book about Swami, was this woman, Vairagya, Vairagi. Um, and for a while in San Francisco, we had a bookstore and a little cafe bookstore. And she ended up having to work the late shift. And uh, because it was in the city of San Francisco and she didn't have a car, she had to take the bus home somewhat quite late, sometimes quite late at night. And she was saying to Swami, it was making her a little nervous to be on the bus that late at night. And there were some inquiries made, you know, whether or not someone else could take the shift, but it really, she really needed to do it. There was really no one else who could. So Swami suggested when she was on the bus that she pray for the other people on the bus. 
And so she would sit there, and especially if people made her a little nervous, she would just, without saying or doing anything, she would just really begin to be pray for them and project light to them. She said from being nervous on the bus, it began to be her favorite part of the whole day. You know, because she suddenly became an instrument. It's really interesting. Very interesting. Okay, any other comments or thoughts or questions? I mean, that's how you become unafraid. This is a case of a woman who was slightly mentally unbalanced, but she was mentally unbalanced in the direction of spirit. And she she just sort of was, she was in an altered, she was in a positive altered state, but it was between a divine awakening and a little bit of psychiatric. It was somewhere in the middle. But actually at this point I think she was in the divine part. And she said she just sort of went into a bus station somewhere out in San Francisco or Oakland like that. She just looked around where she put it for the darkest person she could find and then just went over and tried to help them. <laughs> but she just talked and she was not normally that kind of courageous person. But she, but and then the this person who she gradually realized only later realized you know was actually a rather dark person was very sweet to her and and this he said he ended up calling his mother whom he hadn't called in a really long time. <laughs> I mean this this whole thing happened because she was in an altered state and she was really just somewhere else and just loving God through him someone that she would not normally have had the courage even to speak to. Isn't that interesting? I mean, you, have, you hear stories about saints. I think it was a, let me be fair, I think it was a true, I'm, I'm just trying to really remember it all. I think she was in a true elevated state. Something, as, as happens to people sometimes, something breaks through. It, you know, she, she wasn't able to hold it for the rest of her life. That's why I meant it was somewhere in between. But in that moment, she was really having a divine experience. As expressed by that, because she was able to sort of tame a rather wild character when normally she wouldn't have been able to. It's fun to think about. All right, any other comments? Number 300, you must work to establish your relationship with the Father as a son, the Master said to us one day. Think of him as your own dear parent. Then talk to him just as you would to your own father or mother. Make any request you have or put to him any question you like in that spirit. Pray, for example, Father, I am thy son. As thy child, give me this or that. I mean, there's so much wisdom in those simple words. You know, just the, again, the self-forgetfulness, the trust. I remember once when I was in seclusion, and I was, uh, it was just, well, I was meditating, that's what I was doing. But I was thinking, you know, trying to give energy out. And I had the thought that maybe I should try to receive energy in. And it was extremely interesting to me to realize um, how hard that was. You know, how, how much of what I could consciously feel um, the, this tension in my heart, this tension in my heart that made it very difficult for me to just receive the light of God into myself. And at the time what I realized, all that tension was all the hurts and resentments that I was carrying. That I, I, had, okay, I had created a universe in which unconditional love 
was not possible because I myself was not offering it. I had another experience related to that one, which many of you have heard, but I'll repeat it again. It, it was so convoluted that you just have to trust me that I think the, the pieces were related because I think they were. I was learning to scuba dive. I became, I had a little, at a certain point when I was learning, I had a, a scary moment and it kind of set up in my mind a little bit of fear. Eventually I stopped even trying because I just, you're way underwater breathing through a tube and it made me nervous. <laughs> but, uh, but this was like when I was going back the second year to try it and I became very frightened I was determined to face into it but I still became very frightened and I was just really almost sick with fright and I was just awake all night and somewhere in the middle of the night I was just praying for God to make me not be so afraid and this strange relationship came into my head of this person that I was never very nice to someone who used to be part of our community who isn't now who just was not a person that I was, that I, I, I just didn't feel any rapport. And I mean, I wasn't by any means mean at all, but I always withheld my energy. Just out of, out of likes and dislikes, nothing else. Just out of, I don't like you as much as I like other people, so I'm not going to love you the same. And in the middle of the night, I felt that because I was not forthcoming with my acceptance, I had created a universe in which God could not give to me either. Because in the world that I lived in, unconditional love wasn't there. Yeah. It would, but, and I, I know it was true. Crazy as it seemed, I knew it was true. I mean, then I went through the scuba diving and everything. It wasn't about scuba diving, it was learning that. I came back, I was so nice to that person. I was just so nice you know, <laughs> I just became my absolute favorite. <laughs> but when I was in seclusion, I realized because I withheld, because I was unforgiving, because I was still waiting for somebody to apologize to me. I mean, meaning like incarnations, waiting for somebody to apologize to me. That I, I was in a world where love was conditional. So there. So when there was, when I wanted to sort of be accepted for who I was and receive love just because I exist, I, I, didn't, I wasn't on that wavelength. And so there was, it wasn't Divine Mother withholding it, it was that I wasn't on that wavelength. So just, you know, my vibration is going like this and it just couldn't come through because they didn't match. It's, it's, a, it's very subtle... And, of course, I don't want you to read that to mean that we have to be perfect before God loves us. But sometimes we have to ask ourselves, what, you know, what is my vibration? What am I living in? What am I creating? Am I creating what I want? It's the simplest thing in the world. A lot of times, not a lot of times, but on more than one occasion, when someone has come to me, let's use as an example, a woman who wants to have a child but doesn't, either can't conceive or doesn't have a partner or whatever it might be, or wants to have a partner and doesn't have one, men and women, the kind of things that break your heart that people have to work with. So I try to ask them, who do you think you would become if you had that? You know, 
Like, what would you be like if you had that? And a certain amount of what you imagine you would be like may be dependent on circumstances, but a great deal of it is not. So if you can't make your circumstances match what you want, see how closely you can bring your consciousness to what you want, because among other things, that's one of the ways to attract it, but it's also the way to overcome the disappointment. You know? And, and when, when I'm thinking about what I'm still holding in my heart, it's, well, usually people didn't treat me right, they didn't respect me, they didn't love me, they weren't loyal to me, so I'll show you, I won't respect you, I won't love you, I won't be loyal to you, and then it will all be even, won't we? You know, if you fight for your delusions, you get to keep them. And then you vibrate that way. And even when Divine Mother wants to love you, which is what I was feeling in that seclusion, it's hard for her. Because we're so busy weighing and measuring, we just don't even know how to take it. We don't know where it's coming from. And so we, we, it's, it's, all of it, it's all of it together. You know, it's we do our part, God does his part, we do nothing, God does everything. But what Master is saying in this little thing, cultivate the relationship of a child to its parent. And if you didn't happen to have parents that you trusted that much, then use your imagination to think how wonderful it would be to have a parent you trusted that much. And then how would you behave? You know, the perfect trusting baby image that you can imagine. I mean, we can do all this in the privacy of our own hearts and no one ever has to know. You know, we just become that way. And you'll be amazed what happens from it. Let's take a few minutes break. Just something that I don't know if it fits in, but I have a tendency to obsess about everything. Um, mostly things that are disturbing, but even things that are good, they just go around and around and around and around. And I don't know how applicable it is to what you're talking about, but I just thought I'd mention it. To it's annoying, think. isn't it? It's <laughs> terrible. <laughs> you know, I, I just... I, let me think how to say it. It's just a long, hard fight between aspiration and realization. And it, it, that's why most people quit. It's because they just think it's going to be easier and faster than it is. And when it turns... And, and to, to actually maintain vitality right to the end and be as wide awake and interested in spiritual growth at the end of your life as you are at whatever point it comes into you earlier, it's... It's a very serious issue. And it's, there's just many different levels of uh, success. And one, of, one level of success is just to persevere. And yeah, it's a mess. I, I just, it's just a mess. I astonish myself every day. Just like I take nothing for granted. Because it just, you just can't know. And um, we were talking during the break if, if you have a, a, a mother-father relationship with God, if you're a chela, if you're a child of the guru, um, it, if, if you think of the perfection of the, of the parent-child relationship, because you, if your own relationship is not, wasn't that good, then you don't want that to interfere. You want to think of how a child really trusts its mother and really trusts its father. And, you know, children just are guileless. They have no 
They can't dissemble, they can't pretend, they just are what they are. And, you know, when the mother, when the child is terribly upset, it just rushes to its mother and it doesn't think whether or not I ought to put on a a braver face or anything like that. It just completely becomes unhinged and begins to just wail and weep and want the mother. And then as soon as the mother takes the child, then, you know, everything is safe again. And we have to, we have to be that uninhibited. So I was trying to get this balance point between, because I was just speaking about, we have to let go of all these hurts and angers and betrayals and so on. But at the same time, we don't have to let go of anything because God will love us exactly as we are. And so when I said, you know, I was, I needed to move that, and I was talking about it from that angle, the other side of it was all of that holds me to a vibration in which I I can't be open because I've taken my hurts into myself instead of just releasing them into the infinite. And so I'm holding them to myself and therefore I I can't be comforted. I'm clinging to them. I mean, that's, that's part of, I think, what I'm trying to say is that I'm just determined, you know, to still be upset. And so it's, it, on a certain level, I don't want to be comforted. I don't want to let them go and just be comforted. But Divine Mother is just perfectly willing to comfort me. She doesn't expect me to be any better than I am. So that's where the childlike part of it comes in. And you just, you just throw yourself at the feet of God, just like the little babies throw themselves. I mean, children are fascinating to watch because they just have no... Uh, filters and and they're 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 so total and that's what master's trying to get us to be like suffer little children to come unto me for such are the kingdom of god and he didn't mean just babies can go to heaven he meant that we have to have that kind of trust you know just total trust and uh, everything that we do really comes from a lack of that and a lack of that experience because when you have that experience, um, in one of the stories in, I think it's the Swami Kriyananda book, um, this man talked about going into the light. He, he, was, he had a severe blow to the head so strong that his soul started separating from his body. And he was starting to go into the light and he came into the presence of a light being. And he, he talked about how it wasn't even so much that he released desires and regrets, in the presence of that light, it simply wasn't possible to have them. Because the vibration of the light was so completely fulfilling that just nothing, there was no part of him that was able to move off of it to have any kind of other thought. And so that's what you want to feel like when you're in the arms of Divine Mother or being protected by your Heavenly Father, there's just nothing to be afraid of at all, ever. Nothing to worry about, no past, present. I had a little bit of that experience when, and you know, those of you who were with Swami, you, it's like whenever I was with him, I just simply, there was no other place on the planet to be if, he, if, if his company was a choice. You know, and his leaving the planet has made the planet completely equal. There's no center 
to the planet anymore. When, as long as he was in his body, even if I wasn't where he was, where he was was always the center of the planet. And everything, in that, wherever I was in the world and wherever he was, was always in relationship to that. And when he moved off, it was very ungrounding for me in a, in a way that took me a little while to figure out. It wasn't really just that I couldn't call him or email or go see him. It was that there was no physical center to the universe. And I hadn't realized the extent to which I was always leaning into wherever he was. But extrapolating from that into something that's more real and more practical, if that is your constant companion, and you can always lean into that, just like a little kid. You know how little kids get shy and they'll go around behind their mother and they'll all wrap themselves around her legs and around her skirt and then they'll peek out like that? I mean, inwardly be like that. Or, or how children are very brave if, you know, the father's holding on to them. You know, from the arms of the dad, you can really just give all the courage in the world that you don't have when you're really short. <laughs> but but play, play out all of those things. And then expect it. You know. We might as well, why not? It'll work better than anything else. Left to our own devices, it's pretty awful. Yeah. All right, any other comments or thoughts? So, number 301. A visitor once asked the master, what do you consider the most spiritual place in America? The master replied, I have always considered Los Angeles to be the Benares of America. Interestingly, there is an esoteric tradition that in ancient times, great spiritual masters lived here. I'm not sure what here he means. America, California, anyway, he says lived here. Indeed, the spiritual vibrations of Southern California and in the Los Angeles area particularly, are palpable to anyone who is sensitive the moment he steps off the plane on the arrival there, on his arrival there. <laughs> People joke about the goofiness of the spiritual scene in Los Angeles, but one demonstrates his ignorance in the things he is interested in. <laughs> I cannot but feel also that the master's spiritual vibrations continue to permeate, permeate the whole atmosphere of that city. That's so interesting, isn't it? I mean, Master traveled the whole country. He could have gone anywhere. He went right to Los Angeles and settled himself there. Lived there continuously. You know, went, traveled around the city, set up his, uh, you know, Lake Shrine, Mount Washington, Hollywood Church, and then he went a little bit farther south to Encinitas. I mean, he just put it all right there. He could have put it anywhere. And, and you sort of, you just like, what, what is he building for? This is what you have to think about when you think about an avatar. We're just a little tiny blip in time. I mean, Jesus is the obvious one that you always think about because Jesus' career ended rather badly and was cut off rather early. And it, it didn't go really much better for any of his direct disciples. They almost all had a pretty hard time of it too. Just everybody got destroyed by the power structure. I mean, the whole thing was just crushed out. And they were, they were trying to be Jews, and the Jews wouldn't have them. And then they tried to be Christians, and then the Romans got up real upset with them. I and mean, it, just, it just didn't work anywhere, except it all worked. It, 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 it's like it was magnificently successful in the sense of 
the message of the Master ultimately having uh, such a tremendous influence on the direction of civilization. I mean, nothing lasts in its perfected form forever. So when Yogananda goes to Los Angeles and makes statements like this, and then spends so much of his incarnation impregnating that whole area with his vibration. Master says in another place about the value of pilgrimage that wherever a a self-realized master is, his consciousness remains there forever. And he, he went to so much trouble to create his vibration in Los Angeles because he felt that was the most receptive place, the best place in the country to do it. It all of it just, all, all of these things help one to stand back from the obvious. You know, from the obvious way the mind runs and the way society talks and the way everybody thinks. And just allow yourself even the possibility that there's just a whole other dimension of reality going on here that I need to tune into. And just even that very thought makes us much more receptive, much more at ease and much more able to learn. It's just very, it's very hard to learn if you're not listening. And it's also very hard to learn if if you've got your mind locked into certain little tracks. I've become extremely comfortable not understanding things and just being, who knows? Just who knows why things are the way they are. But also it allows one to going back to where we started with reincarnation, to realize that what we're experiencing in the moment is really just one tiny frame of a very, very long picture. You know, whether we will even care what the long picture is, it also tells us, meaning that once we leave this planet, whether we're really going to be interested enough to reincarnate in a family that comes to this church, you know, (laughs) which people do. I mean, keep reincarnating into the same families. A lot of, uh, Master said a lot of times, you know, a person's soul will just keep generationally for a while. You're so attached to your family home, to your daughter, you know, you're, you're so attached to your daughter, you'll become her daughter. I mean, people see that all the time. I know one of my friends is just certain that her niece is her grandmother. You know, she just says she's just so much like her grandmother. There's just no, absolutely no question it's her grandmother. Because it was just, she loved the family and she saw a chance to get back into it. (laughs) So I don't know whether, you know, we'll be interested in this work after we leave this world. Swami said basically he would stay with us. He wouldn't be interested in the form, but he would be interested in us. Because that, that really is the reality. So what the end point of all of this is, what matters is the spiritual vibration that we put into everything that we do. Because we really don't know what else is going to come from it. But, but that spiritual vibration um, is, is everlasting. Uh, another thing Swami said that was so, I've always remembered, he, he gave a satsang at his dome when it was, you know, much more primitive. But it was a very, very, very deep experience. And I remember him sort of leaning back and looking out over this room of 30 or 40 people. And he just made the comment. First he said, you're going to get it right sooner or later. He said, why waste a few million years? (laughs) And then he said, uh, when self-realization comes, 
He said, you look back over all your incarnations and you realize it was all a dream that what you thought was happening was not happening. And he said, the only things that you recognize as real are those times when your consciousness actually was in contact with eternity. And in the moment, I thought, I'm going to remember this night, (laughs) because it was real. But a lot of times, I try to just put myself in that position, and you look back, and you really, there are, there are things that really did happen, meaning that were eternal in nature. But so much of what happened just goes away. I, I've shared with you before, the first Christmas that I was at Ananda, which would be Christmas of 1971, was my first Christmas, because I was raised in a Jewish family, so I never had Christmas at all. So it was my first Christmas, and it was my first Christmas in a spiritual atmosphere because I was also raised without any particular spirituality. It was, I mean, I can't even begin to describe it. It was so extraordinarily, just exquisitely beautiful on every level. I loved every bit of it. And for years I would tell people about Christmas and you've got to spend Christmas with Ananda. I was just so ecstatic. And then after seven or eight years, I remembered that I spent a lot of it crying. I was, having come to Ananda, just a lot that I was attached to started falling away from me. And I was very unhappy emotionally a great deal of the time. I literally could see myself crying. And, uh, but I forgot. (laughs) I just completely forgot that I was miserable. (laughs) It just absolutely went out of my head. Because I wasn't. Because the misery was not real. The misery was just my emotional self going through all these things because my life was changing so much. But what really happened was that my soul was home. Because we, we live on many levels. And I mean, that, that little experience was given to me so that you can stand in the one that you're in right now and just look at it from a slightly different perspective and ask yourself what really mattered in that incarnation. This is what happened when people have, a lot of people when they have death and return experiences. They just get from a different perspective and they realize that a great deal of what they were concerned about really doesn't matter. And they come back with a wholly different orientation you know, toward everything that they do. Just, they just realize that this looks real, but that is real. I've always felt that in the context of our Sangha. All that matters is that we feel inspired. And it, and, you know, it really doesn't matter if the altar cloths are ironed or, you know, or who's giving the service or whether the chairs are aligned or whether there's dead flowers sitting around outside. I mean, it's nice to kind of fix it up, but it doesn't matter. The only thing that matters is that when we come together, two or three are gathered together in the name of God and He's there with us. Because that will last forever. It'll last forever inside this room, on this plot of land. So Master went to Los Angeles to go back there, and he just began to put his vibration there. Who knows, in some future age, you know, what Los Angeles will be again, because the reason it's powerful is because at one point, apparently, very, very high souls live there. Swami explains elsewhere, not here that what, what gives a place power is the consciousness of the people who live there. He said, 
you know, ley lines and all that sort of have some effect, but what really gives a place power is the masters who live there, and that's what it is. Fascinating, isn't it? Um, Varendra just returned from the meditation retreat and was commenting about that place. And, you know, Swami lived there. Swami felt the masters had already blessed it when we bought it. Fifty years, people have been meditating there. And it still remains so remote that it's just, it's not a, I was going to use the word infected. It's not really infected uh, with worldly vibrations because it's just been this extraordinary place, one of the most inspiring on the planet. But Swami said when he arrived there the first time before he bought it, he bought it because he felt the masters had already blessed it. So what are we dealing with? But that's our job. And I'll, I'll say one more thing before I stop. When Swami dedicated the World Brotherhood Retreat at some year, it would have been somewhere in the 80s. But he, it, and when he spoke about it, he said, you know, we have a responsibility now to create places of pilgrimage. That's what he said. Especially in this country, because it, it, all of that has been neglected. And, you know, there are many places that were holy to the American Indians that had spiritual power, and some of them still. But he said, for, for the most part, they've been neglected for so long that the energy has begun to withdraw and that it's our responsibility to create places of concentrated blessing. I mean, that's why we have a temple. And that's why we do as much as we do here. Because, you know, this place will gradually become. That's why we wanted it to be debt-free you know, so it will be able to be here indefinitely as a place where people constantly come and then the atmosphere is here. When we first set up the first altar here, which looked very different because this has all been restructured, there was this big blue velvet curtain and we hung these big pictures of the master there. This, um, I think it was just another woman and I, maybe there was, maybe there was a, a man helping us, I don't remember. But we, we just hung these big pictures of the masters up on this big curtain. And then I remember I walked down to there to turn around and look at it. And it was the first time we'd really put a big altar up here. And I remember turning around and looking at it and really this astral force. I felt those masters come rushing off the altar and their power just went right over my head and they went right out the door, you know. And I just sort of felt them going, now we'll get to work. <laughs> I mean, it was magnificent. It's like, okay, let's, let's do this now. <laughs> all right. Thank you all. God bless you. <laughs> so, it was, oh yes, we started at, where did I start? I started in the middle of 297 and I went through 301.